Welcome to LSEIQ, a podcast from the London School of Economics and Political Science, where we ask leading social scientists and other experts to answer an intelligent question about economics, politics or society. The human species thinks in metaphors and learns through stories. So says Mary Catherine Bateson, writer and cultural anthropologist. Narratives are all around us, from the TV shows we watch, the newspapers we read, to the anecdotes we tell. But how do narratives shape our understanding of the world, ourselves and the people around us? Do they distort or clarify our view of reality? In this episode, James Ritty asks, how do stories help us understand the world? We want to warn you that the first section of the podcast touches on the issue of suicide and contains some fairly graphic and potentially upsetting descriptions. It's not suitable for everyone. If this is something that you would prefer not to listen to, you could forward to around the 12 minute mark and resume listening then. As a professor of theatre, Lib Taylor is well versed in interpreting narratives from a wide range of performances. It was driving on holiday in the USA that our understanding of how we construct narratives was challenged. Here's Lib setting the scene. In 2002, I was driving from Los Angeles to um, Palm Beach down the freeway uh, with my husband. He was driving, I was in the passenger seat. And um, we were aware that the traffic was gradually slowing down. It seemed to be coming to a a jam of some kind. And then uh, we were aware that we were being pushed over towards one side. And then, quite suddenly, we saw, come into view, uh, the image of a man hanging from a rope about 30 feet um, from a bridge above the highway. The policeman was standing next to him and he was slightly pushing his body to one side so that we could drive past. And we drove past and we sped up and went on our way. And um, I think it was a good 10 minutes before either of us spoke. In the immediate aftermath, Lib's instinct was to try and piece together what happened. My first thought was that this was a suicide of some kind. It was near Christmas. Um, There are all kinds of reasons why people might kill themselves. Or the incidence of suicide might be greater around Christmas time. Um, It was Los Angeles, there were a lot of um, migrant workers who worked there. My brief glimpse of this person, I had in my mind that he, that uh, it was a man, that he was a migrant of some kind. Um, So actually, of course, my mind was beginning to work overtime by that time as I was trying to make sense of this. Despite only seeing the body for a short time, certain things stuck in her mind. Well, his dress was really very important. He looked as if he was quite poor. He had a thick coat on. For me, I think, he had sort of green camouflage almost trousers. He looked as if they were a collection of clothes that he'd collected together um, for work, I suppose, working clothes. He had very dark hair and a dark face. Now, of course, when somebody hangs themselves, the col- there's discoloration of their face. So I, I don't know whether that was significant or not. 
trainers which were pretty tatty and his hair colour, I suppose, that made him look to me like a migrant worker. Interpreting the event as a suicide of a migrant worker calls upon certain shared narratives of immigration, poverty and race. However, the fragility of this narrative was made apparent by her husband, Jonathan. I think we began immediately to construct quite different narratives. I think I saw somebody who was kind of like a family man in some ways, whereas I think he didn't see that at all. Jonathan saw it much more in terms of a, a protester. It was Christmas 2002, so what's that? Three or four months before the invasion of Iraq. There was a lot of protest on the street of Los Angeles while we were there. The doubt over what they had witnessed was further compounded by another theory. At the time I saw it, I thought it, I thought it was real. I didn't have any other response than this is a dead body. It didn't strike me that it was anything else other than a dead body. It was only, I think, about more than an hour later that it struck me that perhaps it wasn't real. Perhaps it was a dummy. Um, perhaps it was some kind of um, protest or um, perhaps it was some kind of game that somebody was playing. It made me think about um, various kind of contexts in which death has become important for the construction of narrative one way or another. After the event, Lib searched but found no reference to the incident in the news. Several years later, she wrote about the Hanging Man, looking at other incidents of death and their connection to narrative. Two events specifically came to mind. The first is the infamous image of a Buddhist monk whose self-immolation during the Vietnam War galvanised the anti-war movement. The second is of a photo taken by Richard Drew of a falling man from the Twin Towers in the aftermath of the World Trade Center attacks in 2001. That is a prelude, the first public suicide which took place on May the 2nd, 1963, when the monk Chin Tien Dien, who with a terrible death that would have condemned him in the eyes of his master, tried to I show... I was photographing the towers on fire and one of the, the, well, the woman EMT said to me, you know, look, look, and she pointed up and I so I took the camera away from my eye and I, so I started seeing the people coming out of the building. It's interesting to think about the falling man and the burning monk, both of whom were uh, figures whose visual impact was very important. And, and there are photographs of it and just looking at the photograph. I was looking at the photograph today and it is shocking. You see this figure almost sitting calmly on the ground while everything burns around him and then he, he burns. And the falling man um, from the, the towers, um, obviously that wasn't deliberate in the sense that they weren't using their own image in order to draw attention to themselves. But that has become a kind of symbol, hasn't it? So it kind of, again, it, 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 it's a moment to mark that particular occasion. It, that both the, uh, the burning monk and the man falling are kind of symbolic images which sum up larger 
event. In one case, it's a much longer, it's a war. In one case, it's, it's that act of terrorism. To develop our understanding of these narratives, as well as of The Hanging Man, Lib started to look at the relationship between narrative and performance, and how these concepts influence the way we make sense of everyday events. I don't really see that you can understand the world we live in unless you recognise that we are, if you like, enacting certain narratives, or we're in interpreting events around us via certain narratives. I think performance depends on understanding certain models of narrative that we all connect to at some level or another. So um, if you're thinking about performance as something that we connect to every day, as part of our own lives, as we go through the rituals of getting ourselves ready in the morning or the, the way in which we dress for particular occasions or the way in which we express our gender or our age or our um, class uh, quite specifically or maybe um, less self-consciously, whichever way we do that, I think that we are connecting to certain narratives of the way in which um, our worlds, our, our everyday existence is played out. Lib contends that many instances of suicide can be understood as performances. While this is a troubling thought, she argues the intentionality of the act and the fact it was staged for an audience makes The Hanging Man a performance that can, and potentially should, be understood in narrative terms. So we've talked a bit about narratives, but you, you yeah. go further than that in your, in your piece to talk about it in relation to ideas of performance, yes. which might be troubling for some people to hear. I, I think you have to think about whether this was a deliberate act or not. Um, so, if, if it was a deliberate act, then presumably it was a deliberate act taking into account the fact that somebody would see it, either the, when it took place or the after effects of it. And that is always the case, I, be, I, th I think, or nearly always the case in suicide, that um, the after effects of that are going to be confronted by somebody. So I think in that, in that respect, I think of it as performance. And obviously, as soon as you see it, you begin to read it in terms of performance because you read, you begin to read who this person is. You begin to read their clothing. You, you begin to read the position the physical bodily position that they're in. You then make uh, assumptions, perhaps, about things like age, class, race, um, gender, and, and so on. So you are reading it then as if it is a performance, really, or at least as you would read a performance and you recognize that it was a deliberate act and it's a deliberate act in a way done for you.
because you're there. You're the person who happens to be driving. And in a way, that was my problem with The Hanging Man, is I didn't know what, which kind of frame to place it in. Was it in a frame of um, contemporary social um, issues or contemporary political issues? Or was it, was it a fiction that might be used in order to prompt a particular real protest of some kind? So it still disturbs me, in fact, because I don't know what was going on. The Hanging Man, Death, Indeterminacy and the Event is published in the journal Performance Research. Right now, breaking news here. Stocks all around the world are tanking because of the crisis on Wall Street. What started in America last year has now spread to every part of the world. We're down 9% data banks over in Frankfurt. The effects of the 2008 financial crisis are still being felt today. Western leaders had to commit trillions of dollars to prevent the banking system from collapsing. One of the abiding questions in the crisis's aftermath is why so few people predicted it. According to Richard Bronk, visiting fellow at LSE's European Institute, the answer is partially the effect of narratives. Richard has recently co-edited a book with Jens Beckhardt, Uncertain Futures, Imaginaries, Narratives and Calculation in the Economy. Narratives, I think, we use to make sense of the world in, in everyday life. It's how we give meaning to what we're doing, how we make sense of our own role in the, in the world. Um, and it's particularly germane, I think, in, in areas which are uncertain, because then we're struggling to make sense of the world, and we tend to latch on to narrative structures that help us make sense of the world, help us give a sense of what we should be doing, the role we should be following. The narratives that Jens and I are particularly interested in are the narratives that uh, economic agents use, the social narratives, the shared narratives that economic agents use to structure their decisions, uh, to guide their expectations uh, in conditions of radical uncertainty. If you like, narratives can provide a logic of action by populating the future with imaginaries worth investing in, or sometimes dystopias worth avoiding. I mean, it's very important to say that narratives are not also or not always benign imaginaries. They're very often um, dystopias uh, that we tell ourselves could eventuate unless we act to prevent them. Uh, and in politics recently, they they have probably been more manifest than uh, positive narratives. The stories and narratives we use can be highly individual. Uh, indeed, that may be uh, a perfectly natural situation for us to all have our own personal stories about what we're doing and why. But when they have a particularly profound effect on markets is when they become shared um, and, and the same narrative, the same imaginary becomes internalized by a large number of, of economic agents at the same time. And then it becomes much more likely that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, that the future will turn out as the narrative suggests. Can you think of a, a good example where that's playing out right now? I, I think probably the most interesting macroeconomic example of, of the use of narratives is by central banks. Um, and this is looked at by Douglas Holmes and Benjamin Brown in our, in our book. Um, Douglas quotes Ben Bernanke of the Federal Reserve saying monetary policy is now 98% talk and 2% action. 
Uh, and this might come as an enormous shock to those who think central banks are essentially um, machines for econometrics. Um, but if you think about it, central banks spend a huge amount of effort now in crafting rhetorically messages to give to us as market participants or as voters to cajole our expectations in particular directions, to, to make their policy intentions our own expectations. It's called forward guidance. Um, and this is a very important function of, 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 of central banking. But of course, they're not alone in trying to cajole our expectations in certain directions. Most companies are trying to do it, and most innovators are trying to cajole expectations of, of, of the nascent market in their direction. And of course, politi politics, the more the world is uncertain, the more it appears that politics is, is becoming closer to the postmodern idea of a set of warring narratives trying to, to, to create, uh, to, 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 uh, to ensure that as many people as possible buy into their narrative um, and therefore create the world in their own image. Then the future is to some extent a function of power. Who has effects and determines the future is who has the rhetorical, the market, and the political power to make their narratives, their stories count and make others internalize them. But there's a huge danger if everyone adopts the same narrative. And that narrative turns out to be a very false account of how the world works or will work. Are narratives becoming more of a fixture in economics? And if so, is that because the world and economics and the markets are growing ever more complicated and therefore the models we have are increasingly insufficient in the face of greater uncertainty? The more that economics is trying to grapple with how economic agents are deciding how to act and forming their expectations and behaving in conditions of radical uncertainty, they're driven to taking narratives very seriously. Um, and Robert Schiller, for example, who uh, with George Akerlof wrote a book about, called Animal Spirits way back in 2009, which looked at the role of certain um, narratives in becoming conventional frames and having group emotions attached to them um, and, and blamed part of the financial crisis on, on that, has recently called for a new narrative economics. Um, and in our volume, I think we point to some of the ways in which this might be done. Uh, Robert Boyer looks at how you have um, a series of grand narratives that, that dictate certain socio-economic regimes and then you get a shift to a new narrative and to a new regime um, at a point where that narrative fails to explain key events and, and you get a sort of crisis shift, if you like, to a new narrative. Mervyn King calls this a narrative revision. And as a result of that, if we all rely on one narrative, if we all rely, if you like, on, on one prism, then it, to the extent that narrative or prism has... Uh, holes in it is, is not a, a, a good representation of reality and no model or narrative can be a complete uh, representation of what's going on, then if everyone shares the same narrative, they're all going to share the same blind spots and they're all going to share the same cognitive myopia. And I think this is exactly, you could argue, what happened before the financial crisis. The extent to which so much of the market bought into the idea the narrative, if you like, that we'd entered into a new world of lower risk and higher returns because we managed to turn uncertainty into measurable risk with all these very clever risk calculation models. That narrative 
made sure that everyone was thinking about the same facts in the same way and they all missed what was happening at the same time. Uh, and you get something that looks very like a paradigm crisis, if you like, as you then shift from one narrative to another. And it's this narrative revision that I think Mervyn King and others are becoming very interested in as a, as a, as a telltale sign of when you get disjunctions in, in, in radical disjunctions in markets. And very interestingly, in central banking, you're beginning to get, I think, a realization of this. So one of the things that Douglas Holmes looks at in our book is not just the use by central banks of forward guidance where they tell us uh, how the economy will uh, develop, but they're also, in the case of the Bank of England, through their network of agencies, trying to enter into a conversation with other players in the marketplace to glean their stories about what they think is happening as a way of spotting emerging patterns. So I think this being open to other people's narratives while believing your own is a very difficult balancing act that policymakers and innovators have to, to find a, a, a nice balance all the time. So I think there is a, a growing interest in, um, and there needs to be a growing interest in the role of narratives in structuring expectations and guiding behaviour uh, in, in the economy. That's a rather different thing from the role of narratives in model making and in science, which is something that Mary Morgan, for example, I know has looked at a great deal. All good stories have a beginning, middle and end. And for the final chapter of this podcast, we turn to Alfred Hitchcock's 1951 movie, Strangers on a Train. The premise of the film is simple. Two men meet coincidentally and talk about the people they want out of their lives. Bruno hates his father, while Guy wishes to separate from his wife. Bruno proposes a solution. Now, here's my idea. I'm afraid I haven't got time to listen, Bruno. Listen, it's so simple, too. Two fellows meet accidentally, like you and me. No connection between them at all. Never saw each other before. Each one has somebody that he'd like to get rid of. So... They swap murders. Swap murders? <laughs> Each fellow does the other fellow's murder. Then there's nothing to connect them. Each one has murdered a total stranger. Like, you do my murder, I do yours. This neat plotting station. has all the markings example, of a Hollywood thriller. What is less obvious is this narrative setup is also an expression of a mathematical theory developed during the 20th century. In true cliffhanger tradition, more on that later. It is this relationship between narrative and mathematics, science and economics, that has long fascinated Professor of History and Philosophy of Economics, Mary Morgan. One might think of models, theories, experiments and hypotheses as cornerstones of scientific practice, but not narrative. Mary disagrees. She is the principal investigator on the Narrative Science Project at LSE, which seeks to better understand the role of narrative in modern science. So what I'm interested in how, is how scientists use narratives for themselves to explain things to themselves. And so I spent a while thinking about and studying narrative. And the one thing, and narrative scholars have lots of different definitions of narrative, um, beginning, middle and end. I don't know, are you, are you a literature person? Uh, film, so. Films, okay. So beginning, middle and end, um, a change in status from the beginning to the end. Things mostly like that, but all of them have time in. You have time is essential for a narrative. Um, and the one thing that they really agree on was that a narrative is not a chronicle. 
Now, a chronicle is just a list of things that happen, or a list of things in time. There's no relationships between that list. So if I say to you something like Mary Elizabeth Anne Victoria Elizabeth, maybe I've missed out a few, those are the queens of England. Right? Well, those are the queens of England, but there's not much that links them up because they're spread over so many hundreds of years. Right? That's a classic chronicle. Right? A narrative doesn't just order things, it gives you some sense of the relationship between them. It might be a causal relationship, it might be a historical relationship, it might be very indeterminate, but the point is it's an ordering of things that are related. So that's my starting point, if you like, for narrative science. The obvious ones are things like evolutionary or natural historical sciences, evolutionary biology, geology, um, paleontology, um, so the classic narrative in paleontology. What caused the dinosaurs to die? (laughs) As far as I understand it, there's not agreement, but they all have narrative accounts. (laughs) Now, let's go to another science which you might not think of as narrative. So let's take chemistry. Now, a classic thing in chemistry is chemical reaction. You add X to Y and you get Z. Well, you start off, (laughs) you add X to Y and you get Z. That's almost a classic definition of a narrative. Beginning, middle, end, change of state. (laughs) Well, so all of the explanations over time for exactly what happens in that have, in a sense, a narrative plot structure. But what of those areas where narrative less clearly has relevance? Mary suggests that even things like models in part depend on narrative, not just as a means of describing how they might be applied, but in their very essence. Game theory is the modelling of how rational decision makers might act in certain scenarios. To demonstrate how even these models rely on narrative, Mary uses the famous case of the prisoner's dilemma. It's a little game in which there's two prisoners who both um, grabbed by the local sheriff and the sheriff hopes to get them both to tell on each other. And if they could both manage to not tell on each other, they would both uh, deny everything and come off with not very much time in prison. But if one tells against the other, he gets off lightly and his fellow gets a lot of prison time and vice versa. Um, And if they both tell on each other, of course, uh, that's a bad outcome too, but not as bad as one telling against the other. Well, so there's a little story there about what will happen if certain things are going on. But when you look at what the economics has, it has the what's called the matrix of payoffs, the numbers, the relative numbers of what will go wrong under certain conditions or what the payoff will be to certain kinds of behaviour. And the assumptions of the economic theory is that each individual will behave rationally. And if each individual behaves rationally, they will both tell on each other getting a bad outcome. Now, the important point about this is not the prisoner's dilemma case itself, but the fact that um, when you look at what the economics consists of, it consists of the matrix of payoffs, the numbers of uh, years in prison that will will happen, and it has this narrative about the prisoner's dilemma. The dilemma for each prisoner is should they tell on their, their fellow conspirator or not. Well, in fact, when you look at this, you cannot get the prisoner's dilemma story out of the matrix because it all depends on what the setup and the rules are, and the, rule, the rules of the situation and the rules of what will happen. And that's only in the narrative. Um, and without the narrative, you don't have what's called the rules of the game. People will be using it for all sorts of purposes to try and explain things they observed in the world. And it is here that Bruno and Guy's chance meeting in Strangers on a Train becomes relevant. 
The characters have three options. Firstly, they can cooperate by murdering the other's loved one. Secondly, both could choose not to go through with the murder. Finally, one party could go through with the murder while the other decides not to. The outcomes demonstrate how the prisoner's dilemma maps onto the film's setup. Are you trying to tell me? Why, you maniac! That guy, you wanted it. We planned it on the train together, remember? Where are you going? Where do you think I'm going? I'm going to call the police, of course. But you can't, guy. We'd both be arrested for murder. We'd both be arrested for murder. You're just as much in it as I am. We planned it together. Crisscross. Are you, you crazy fool? Do you think you can get away with that? Oh, come now, guy. From Why the prisoner's dilemma, we can see how even game theory depends on narrative in order to work. As well as understanding how narratives function in the sciences, from chemistry to paleontology, Mary is also interested in how narrative applies to the social sciences. It was thinking about her work on slums that Mary reflected on how the complex events, connections and relationships found in these communities were being crafted into narratives. In doing so, she became aware that the process of ordering events broadened her definition of what a narrative can be and how it can help give meaning to the world. Then I went back to social sciences, which is my base field, and started looking at social anthropology, particularly urban ethnographies, where you have, you know, a, maybe a study of a slum community. And one of the ones I've worked on is a very famous one called Street Corner Society, which is a study of an Italian slum in North Boston. This is a, a narrative account. It's a case study narrative account based on ethnography. Um, and there's no beginning, middle and end. There's, time isn't really important. I mean, of course, time is passing, but the important thing are the relationships within the group of these street corner kids. Well, actually, they're more like young men. They're young men with nothing to do with no money and small houses, so they're out on the street. Um, so it's about their internal relationships, the relationships between them and the police, between them and the college boys, between them and the political establishments. Now, this pr produces lots of little narratives about what happens when they go bowling together, and it produces a narrative account of how the society works, time is not important. Okay? So from this I got to the point where thinking, okay, what's the important thing about narrative? You go back to this narrative theory versus chronicle. The important thing is not that time is there, but those events in time are ordered, not just a sequence. So the critical thing about narrative, and I think we see this in modern films much more than in old films, is it's not a straightforward, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. These are things which are interrelated and exactly how they interrelate we might want to remain a bit agnostic about, but we do think they're all somehow related together. And that's what creates, I think, narrative. And I think that's, that fits a kind of modern sense of narrative, but mm. possibly not an older sense of narrative, possibly particularly in films. Um, so that's the Narrative Science Project is about got five postdocs, it's a wonderful project, it's about each of these young scholars looking at particular fields where we can see narrative doing serious work and to then try and get a handle on what narrative does for the sciences and why it's important to have it as part of the way we study and think about science and what science does in our world. Narratives then affect both the way we see ourselves and society. While they can distort, they also have the power to form knowledge and give meaning to our lives. To finish, here's a clip from Adaptation, a movie that wrestles with the role and authenticity of stories. In this edited clip, screenwriter Charlie Kaufman 
asks writing guru Robert McKee whether stories accurately describe the real world. What if a writer is attempting to create a story where nothing much happens, where people don't change, they don't have any epiphanies, they struggle and are frustrated and nothing is resolved? More reflection of the real world. The real world? Yes, sir. The real world. Nothing happens in the world? Are you out of your mind? People are murdered every day. There's genocide, war, corruption. Somewhere in the world, somebody sacrifices his life to save somebody else. Every day, someone somewhere takes a conscious decision to destroy someone else. People find love, people lose it. For Christ's sake, a child watches a mother beaten to death on the steps of a church. Someone goes hungry. Somebody else betrays his best friend for a woman. If you can't find that stuff in life, then you, my friend, don't know crap about life. Okay, thanks. If you've been affected by the issues in this podcast, you could contact the Samaritans on 116123. This episode of LSEIQ was brought to you by James Ritty, Natalie Abbott, Sue Windybank, Ollie Johnson, Shay Forbes-Taylor and Tom Williams. It was based in part on the following research. The Hanging Man, Death, Interdeterminacy and The Event by Lib Taylor. Uncertain Futures, Imaginaries, Narratives and Calculation in the Economy, edited by Jens Beckert and Richard Bronk. And Narrative Science and Narrative Knowing, Introduction to Special Issue on Narrative Science by Mary Morgan. For more episodes of this podcast and to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud, please visit lse.ac.uk forward slash IQ or search for LSE IQ in your favourite podcast app. And please consider leaving us a review on the Apple Podcasts app or on iTunes as this makes the podcast easier for new listeners to discover. Join us next time when we ask, is the gentrification of our global cities inevitable?